This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, The New Age from a Mystical Perspective, recorded November 15, 1998, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This is a question from the question box that Mike mentioned earlier, and it was dropped in by Lorraine, and here's the question. Many New Age beliefs express that we are co-creators of our existence and experience, and have done so unconsciously, but are capable of doing that consciously, and offer various techniques for manifestations of life experiences. How does Buddhism hold this view? Well, let me say right off, there are two difficulties for me, trying to answer this question. Uh, one of them is that the term New Age is quite vague, and it covers many, many kinds of beliefs and practices and so forth. Uh, I do have some experience with this because I worked at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore in Los Angeles, which is the grandmother of all the Paralandras and New Age bookstores around the country. This was the original one, and most of them are modeled after the Bodhi tree. And in that bookstore, they had various sections. If you go down to Paralandra, I think you'll see the same thing. Uh, they had sections at the Bodhi tree that included traditional religions, and uh, particularly the mystics of those religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so forth. But they also had sections on astrology, aliens, alternate therapies, shamanic healings, herbs, hypnosis, crystals, massage, uh, dreams, tarot, tantric sex, and a whole range of things. I should say so-called tantric sex, not the, uh, it's the popularized version of tantric sex. So it's difficult talking about New Age beliefs as though they're just one set of beliefs and so forth. And then the second reason it's difficult for me to try to answer this question is because I am not a Buddhist, per se. Uh, but I do know something about Buddhism. And I think it would be useful to take the opportunity uh, to talk about the similarities and differences of New Age beliefs and practices and traditional mystical uh, beliefs and practices, uh, especially because many seekers come to traditional mysticism via New Age, including myself. I started off uh, being interested in the New Age beliefs and practices and going to New Age workshops down in Los Angeles and so forth. And it was through that that I actually stumbled on the mystics because they would occasionally quote mystics and so forth. And so then I started uh, reading the mystics directly and I, I sort of moved over and started following the traditional mystics. But when I talk about the New Age here, keep in mind that this is my experience with the New Age, not necessarily everyone's. And when I talk about the kinds of beliefs and practices, these are the ones that uh, stood out to me. So you may have a different experience, and uh, you're perfectly, uh, it's perfectly legitimate that you would. So I'm not trying to lay down the dogma about what the New Age believes. I'm just trying to communicate in this talk what my experience was. So first, let's look at the similarities. And I think there are many similarities, actually, because many of the ideas of the New Age were borrowed from traditional uh, mystical uh, uh, texts, teachings, and so forth. So the first part of this question is, 
Many New Age beliefs express that we are co-creators of our existence and experience. So then the first question is, co-creators with whom or with what? And I think that uh, most uh, New Agers would probably use some term here like uh, higher self, uh, co-creators with your higher self or uh, maybe a higher power or something like that. But the idea probably comes originally from the Bible. Actually, the New Age is rooted in uh, earlier New Thought movements and so forth, many of whom drew on the Bible. I have not researched this historically, but I would imagine this idea of being co-creators comes from the Bible. And there is, in fact, a specific uh, scripture where Paul, St. Paul, is writing to the Corinthians about himself and Apollos, who was another Christian teacher. And here's what he says. We are ministers by whom you believed. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundations, and another, that's Apollos, buildeth thereupon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. So the idea here is that God's grace works through Paul and Apollos and as teachers, but everyone has to take responsibility for applying these teachings to their own lives and reforming their own lives, changing their own lives. So in that sense, the grace comes from God, but we co-work with God. We can't just sit around and, and expect God to take care of everything, so to speak. So at least that was the meaning, original meaning, that uh, the way Paul used this. Other traditions, I don't know whether they would express it as being co-workers with God or the divine or something, but they certainly talk <coughs> about working as the servant of God. This is a very popular uh, or universal theme that runs through mystical traditions. Uh, here's, for instance, uh, a Hindu, Ananda Mayamai. She says, In the morning, as soon as you wake up, pray. Lord, accept as thy service everything I shall do today. Try to spend the whole day in the spirit. So the idea here is, in a certain sense, you're working with God as a servant, and you are, everything you do, you're doing for God, for the divine. Now, when we come to Buddhism, we have a problem, because Buddhism has no God. So there's no one to be a co-creator with. So I don't think Buddhists would express this at all in the sense of being co-creators of our experience. Uh, here's what the Dhammapada says. Mind is the forerunner of all actions. All deeds are led by mind, created by mind. So we still get this idea in some sense that we are creating our own experience. I think in Buddhism it's fair to say you are solely responsible for your experience and your existence. You're not a co-creator with anything else. It all falls on your shoulders, so to speak. Here's what the Tibetan Buddhist Lama Yeshe writes. From the Buddhist point of view, all the circumstances of our life are manifestations of our own consciousness. This is the central understanding of Buddhism. 
painful and confusing situations derive from a painful and confused mind. And whatever happiness we experience, from ordinary pleasures to the highest realization of enlightenment, is also rooted in our own mind. So, I think when we compare New Age beliefs and mystical uh, teachings on this score, we find whether there's the idea of being a co-creator or not, certainly uh, both uh, New Agers and mystics would agree that we are responsible for our experiences of happiness and suffering. Instead of looking outside ourselves, that we should be looking inside ourselves. So then the uh, question continues, Lorraine's question continues, it says, we have been creating our experience unconsciously, but are capable of doing so consciously. And again, this is kind of a modern way of expressing it, this idea of being conscious or unconscious and so forth. But I think there are, again, real similarities here between what uh, New Age beliefs teach and what mystics teach. In mystical traditions, uh, we are in bondage to our experience of suffering because we're ignorant of its true causes. So here's, for example, what the Buddhist Wang Po says. It is ignorance which turns the wheel of causation, thereby creating an endless chain of karmic causes and results. For those of you who are not familiar with these Eastern uh, cosmologies, the idea is that we are trapped in this cycle of uh, existence, and we are trapped by karma, and karma is, uh, is our actions producing results, and we keep on, uh, under ignorance, we keep on producing um, unrealistic actions, and they keep on producing mostly results of suffering. And so we go round and round and round. But somehow it's, we're ignorant of how this is happening. That's our root problem here. Uh, likewise, the Hindu Shank Shankara writes, The mind is filled with ignorance, and this causes the bondage of birth and death. So it's the same idea in Hinduism and Buddhism, that somehow we keep creating our own suffering, but we are ignorant of uh, how we're doing this. And actually, Jesus says the same thing, but from another point of view. He says, if you follow my teachings, then you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free here is from sin and its wages, which are suffering and death. So again, the idea here is that our, our suffering and uh, even dying is all a product of something that's happening that we are ignorant of. That if we knew the truth about all this, we would be free of all that. So it's really the same idea here. So to the extent that we're ignorant, we are unconscious. That is one way of thinking about the unconscious. And to the extent we know the truth, then we can consciously change our experiences from experiences of suffering to experiences of happiness. And there's even a closer uh, meaning here, closer to our modern ideas about what the unconscious is, uh, modern psychological ideas. And that has to do with what in Eastern traditions are called latent tendencies. In Sanskrit, it's vasanas. And these are tendencies that we have 
that condition our behavior. They arise out of past conditioning, and we act on these tendencies, and they condition our present actions, and that determines uh, our, what's going to happen to us in the future. They're latent because they are not under our conscious control. And so even if we understand intellectually how karma works, and if we even understand intellectually uh, what it is that we do that causes suffering in the future, that doesn't mean we can necessarily just automatically change this. We can't just make a New Year's resolution and say, oh, I'm going to stop doing that. This idea of latent tendencies means that we're propelled somehow, you know. And, you know, we find this in Christianity as well. Here's what Paul says. For the good that I would do, I do not. But the evil which I would not do, that I do. And this comes from the idea in Christianity uh, of original sin, which is actually a, a way of expressing uh, this thing that we can observe in our own lives, that we can't always uh, do good, even though we may want to do good. That's just what Paul's saying. You may know what is good and what is the right thing to do, and you may know what is the wrong thing to do, but something in us just keeps <laughs> causing us to do things we kick ourselves and say, why did I do that? And that's, in Christianity, it's explained by original sin. That's something that we are born with. It doesn't. It's not something under our conscious control. It's not a sin that we did consciously. It's, again, a kind of a latent tendency to sin, if you like to put it in Christian terms. So we really have the same idea here, a very similar idea. So in that sense, I think New Agers and mystics would agree that, that normally our behavior, a lot of our behavior, comes from unconscious causes. In modern terms, we say they are uh, arise from the subconscious or something. You know, we are, in that sense, neurotic. We, we keep acting. We don't even, even understand why we do these things. And so, if we could become conscious of these uh, uh, latent tendencies, then there's a possibility of somehow dealing with them. And so, that's uh, an important step in this whole process of change, of getting uh, uh, rid of these latent tendencies. In fact, there are some yogas, particularly in Hinduism, where the, the whole point of the yoga is to bring these latent tendencies to light and burn them, as they put it. But you have to bring them to light first. You have to see what it is you're burning. Uh, another way of saying it is that they're very subtle tendencies we don't normally notice. And one of the things about a med kind of meditation practice we did this morning is the mind becomes uh, much more observant when it, when it uh, no longer is following thought. And you see subtleties of how thought works and how it works with emotions and so forth that uh, normally we just can't observe because our minds are so scattered. So then, because we can't just make a New Year's resolution and say, oh, now I understand karma, now I understand what's causing my suffering, so I'm just going to quit. Because of this fact, then, why both, I think, uh, New Agers and mystics offer techniques for manifesting, I would say here, for transforming our life experiences. So that was the third part of Lorraine's question, or leading up to the question. So I think that's true. That's another thing that both New Agers and mystics agree with. They both offer, there are techniques, and we need these techniques because just this fact, that largely this is unconscious. 
But this is where New Agers and mystics begin to differ. Although some of the techniques can seem quite similar. For instance, both uh, New Agers and mystics are interested in uh, thoughts, watching your thoughts and even substituting positive thoughts for negative thoughts and so forth. Uh, the Buddha has a wonderful line in the Dhammapada. It says, uh, uh, he who abused me, mistreated me, uh, did me wrong, uh, ho- holding on to such thoughts causes suffering. But thinking he abused me, mistreated me, did me wrong, by releasing such thoughts, suffering is released. So this is very much uh, an a instruction to pay attention to your thoughts, and when you find yourself thinking uh, rotten things about people or whatever, to just let that go. Just stop. Just let it pass. Don't identify with it. Don't keep cultivating it. So that's kind of like positive thinking in the, in the New Age sense. Both uh, New Agers and uh, mystics are very interested in meditation, meditative techniques, techniques for concentration and so forth. And both talk about contacting our own innate wisdom or inner guidance and things like that. But the difference starts to emerge when we ask, what end are these techniques aiming for? What is the goal here? Now, the ultimate goal is to eliminate suffering and attain happiness. And both mystics and New Ages would agree with that. But how is this going to be done is is the question where they start to diverge. What constitutes happiness? And what really is the cause of suffering? And when we start asking these questions, I think we can begin to see major differences opening up. I want to read you some uh, uh, examples of what New Age books claim to do. These are taken from the blurbs. These are taken actually from a little advertising blurbs and also a little write-ups in the Bodhi Tree catalog. You know, that little paragraph telling you about what this book is going to do for you. So here's what some of these books claim. Here's a blurb from a book called I Could Do Anything If I Only Knew What It Was. Some of these titles are very cute, by the way. I like them. (laughs) And here's what the blurb says about it. How to discover what you really want and how to get it. And here's a blurb from a book called Transforming Your Dragons. And it says, Turning Personality Fear Patterns into Personal Power. Here's a blurb from If I Had Three Wishes, The Only One Would Be. And this is what the blurb says. Your personalized plan for discovering your life goals, igniting your spiritual power, and making your dreams come alive. And here's a blurb from Creative Visualization. This New Age classic contains techniques that will help you increase your personal mastery of life, feel more relaxed and peaceful, develop your creative talents, reach your career goals, dissolve negative habit patterns, and increase your prosperity. Here's a blurb from uh, for Navigating the 90s. <laughs> this book is a compilation of the 25 life lessons the author learned from his spiritual teacher. 
By following his advice, you learn how to draw upon your inner strength and wisdom, gain self-esteem and confidence, feel good about who you are, and take charge of your life instead of reacting to it. And here's my favorite. For those of you who know, I used to work in the film business. This is a book called Soul Surfing, and the blurb says, Imagine creating the future you were really born to realize, free of negative conditioning, using a process called phasing, which draws on the process of real-life film production. (laughs) The author guides us through the process of pulling all our parts together to manifest the final film in which we play the starring role. (laughs) Soul surfing. (laughs) So, the aim of these New Age beliefs is to attain happiness by enhancing and protecting yourself. By gaining power, personal power, uh, being able to fill all your desires, and being able to avoid all those unpleasant things that you want to get rid of. And there's a problem with this from Mystic's point of view. All the things that these... uh, Uh, books claim to be able to uh, allow us to achieve, which we might, by the way, be able to achieve temporarily, are all impermanent. All the pleasant things that we want in life are impermanent. So, for instance, prosperity, impermanent. You might get uh, prosperous and be rich the rest of your life, but you're going to die. You're going to lose it all in the end. You know, there's an old saying, you can't take it with you. Health. I didn't mention these, but a lot of New Age books are concerned about health. There's nothing wrong about being healthy, but if if this is the way you're going to attain ultimate happiness, you're deceiving yourself because you might stay healthy a few more years and a few more years, but, you know, eventually... Uh, the teeth start to rot, the gums recede, you know, the heart doesn't work the way it used to anymore, the digestive system gets cranky, you know. <clears throat> Eventually, we get old and we die. The health breaks down. And I don't care how many new uh, pig organs they can make for you that you can go on transplanting. Your, you might be able to prolong this even for centuries in the future, but I guarantee you it's not eternal. It's impermanent. All these things that we desire, all the pleasant things are impermanent. And most of the big, the biggie unpleasant things we can't avoid. Old age, disease, death, we just can't avoid. So this is futile if we're going to talk about really attaining happiness. You might attain some temporary happiness, but fulfilling your desires for pleasant things and avoiding all the things you think are unpleasant, is unrealistic. In the long run, it just ain't going to work. So this is what Ananda Moyamai says. She says, Happiness that depends on anything or anyone turns into sorrow when that particular thing or person is out of reach. 
Everything in this world is transitory. So also worldly happiness. It comes, and the next moment it is gone. Now, is this true? I mean, just stop to think about it. Everything. Your soulmate, you know, your cat. Whatever it is. This is not a big mystery here. This is not the mysterious part of mysticism. This is just pretty obvious. But we just don't know what else to do, usually. From a mystic's point of view, see, that's part of our ignorance. We just don't know what else to do. What else could you do? We better just get what little happiness we can, you know, before we sink into that dark abyss of death, and who knows what's going to happen then. But now, this is where there starts to be a divergence. Here's what Ananda Moyamai says. If permanent abiding happiness is to be found, that which is the eternal will have to be realized. So now we come to a big clue of the difference between what mystics aim for and what most New Age's uh, belief systems and practices aim for. They're not aiming for some sort of temporary happiness in this world that's transitory, that's going to fade away. They're aiming for something deeper, beyond. And then the uh, mystics analysis goes deeper and says, well, uh, gee, if all this uh, stuff that we want to get is all impermanent and we can never really attain abiding happiness from that, uh, what can we do? And they say, well, you know, if we really actually look very deeply into our experience, we'll find that this self that we're always trying to enhance and protect and so forth, actually doesn't really exist. And our ignorance of this fact, that is the root cause of all our suffering. The very root cause, the fact that we believe we are some individual separate self. Now, let me read you what some of the mystics have said. The... uh, Anonymous author of the great Christian classic, The Cloud of Unknowing, a medieval work, writes, Every man has plenty of cause for sorrow, but he alone understands the deep universal reason for sorrow who experiences that he is. Just that experience of being an isolated, separate, individual entity, I, self, in here, is itself suffering. We can see this just because if that is your experience, just that experience itself is one of isolation and alienation. It's being cut off. Here's what uh, a Hindu, totally different tradition, Shankara writes. Man's life of bondage to the world of birth and death has many causes. The root of them all is the ego, the first begotten child of ignorance. When a man's mind is overpowered by extreme ignorance, it creates the sense of ego. Again, of an I, a separate self. And it comes out of ignorance. Here's a Sufi. The Sufis, I said, are the mystics of Islam. Ibn Arabi, he writes, Know that you are an imagination, as is all that you regard as other than yourself, an imagination. This is imaginary, this feeling we have that we are some separate, isolated self. That's what he's saying. And this idea that there's something other, other than ourselves, is imaginary. 
It's just a product of the imagination. It isn't real. And finally, here's the Buddhist, Longchenpa. The nature of all phenomena is emptiness and selflessness. By not realizing it, because of apprehending I and me, beings are deluded in the dreamlike samsara, and they are experiencing varieties of happiness and suffering. So one should realize the non-existent nature of self. Dreamlike samsara is the Buddhist and uh, also Hindu term for our experience that is not real, our deluded experience of being a separate self wandering around in a world of separate objects. That is what samsara is. So what he's saying here is there is no self. It doesn't exist. And that's what we should try to realize. The emptiness of this uh, feeling that we are a self. It's empty in the sense it doesn't really, it's not really there. It's just imaginary, as Ibn Arabi says. And the reason this is, as Shankar says, the root of our bondage to life and death and sufferings and, uh, and everything else is because once we imagine, believe that we are some separate entity, I or self, then we start identifying with some specific range of phenomena that's internal and disidentifying with all the rest of the stuff that's out there. And one of our strongest identifications comes, uh, becomes the identification with these desires and aversions that are arising. We think that's who we are. And if that's who we are, then we are propelled to go try to satisfy all those desires and avoid all those things we are averse to. And then some more detailed, complicated analysis, but all our troubles flow from that, basically, from a mystic's perspective. So this is why the Buddhist Seng San says, to set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. We're always grasping after everything we like and trying to run away from everything we don't like, and our minds are constantly going this way and that way, and they never settle down long enough to, to look and say, my gosh, is there anyone there in all this to begin with? That's why he calls this a disease of the mind. Uh, mystics don't deny that some things are pleasant and some things are unpleasant. What they're denying here is that you can ever find abiding happiness by chasing after the pleasant things and avoiding the unpleasant things. That's very important. Uh, it's not that their desires and aversion shouldn't be arising. In fact, under our deluded experience of being separate selves, those desires and aversions are in the mystical uh, traditions, what constitute those latent tendencies, those unconscious tendencies. This is what makes us do things that we know we shouldn't do and not do the things that we know we should do. Well, we can see this in, in, in actually in, in, in very simple things that relate to your health, for instance. Maybe you should be on a diet. When somebody passes the box of uh, C's candies, ooh, that little cherry one looks good. <laughs> but bigger things. We know that uh, 
that if we are in a family situation, that uh, love and compassion promotes harmony and happiness in a family. And we get angry and we get upset and so forth. And sometimes we, you know, kick ourselves for that. Say, why did I do that? I didn't really mean to say that to my spouse or my partner or my child. Do you know what I mean? Does anyone have that experience? But we find ourselves just doing it. I mean, this is the latent tendencies. This is why we can't just make a New Year's resolution to be good. We can't sit down and say, okay, from now on, I'm going to be good and harmonious and peaceful, and I'm never going to get angry, and I'm never going to harm anyone. So it takes a little bit more work than that. These are the tendencies that a spiritual practices, a practice uproots, so to speak. And that's a little bit a crude way of saying it. It's more like seeing through to their real nature so that they weaken and they have less power and they don't determine our lives. Here's why Ananda Moyamai advises, Abandon yourself to God in all matters without exception. May he do as he pleases with me, who am but a creature of his hands. This should be your attitude of mind. It is personal desire that is the very cause of suffering. Personal desire. Desire we identify with. Not just biological desire. You know, Ananda Moyamai, well, she probably didn't get hungry. She spent her life with other people feeding her. But uh, but most mystics got hungry. Jesus got hungry, and he enjoyed a good meal, too. Well, he spends half the time in the Bible, you know, running around feasting with people and drinking wine and stuff like that. But it's that sense that this desire is, is me, is truly me, and boy, if I don't fulfill it, if I don't get what I want, I'm going to lose out. I'm never going to be happy. That's the problem here. So she's saying, as a counter to that, accept what happens. Think of yourself as a creature in God's hands. Say, whatever happens, fine. Here's what the Buddha says. Whoever has no craving, either for this world or another world, who is detached and unbound, him do I call a noble one. So, mystics, instead of trying to realize all their desires, fulfill all their desires, seek detachment from their desires, not to be controlled by their desires, not to be blown this way and that way and be under their sway. This is why the Buddhist Huay Ning says, if we never let our minds become attached at any time to anything, we gain emancipation. For this reason, we make non-attachment our fundamental principle, our fundamental principle, And if you read through other mystical traditions, you will find the same thing. Detachment over and over and over again. Uh, And this is why mystics practice meditation. They don't practice meditation to develop their creative talents, reach their career goals, and increase their prosperity. They, They practice meditation to learn detachment from their own emotions and their own thought processes as we were doing earlier this morning, where you focus on one object, and then the mind isn't running after, every, uh, the attention isn't running after everything your thoughts are telling you, or every emotion that comes up. And by doing that, it's not about getting rid of thought or emotions, or even desires or versions, it's by starting to experience them as phenomena, objective phenomena arising and passing in consciousness, just like the weather. Some days it's sunny, some days it's cloudy, 
And it's always changing. And our thoughts are always changing, and our emotions are always changing. <coughs> so this is uh, the real reason from mystic's point of view to practice meditation is to get some distance from all this, some detachment from all this. So it's not, uh, it's not determining our actions and then determining the consequences of those actions. It's also to start to, underneath all this, when we stop grasping at everything and pushing it away, the true nature of who we are starts to come through. That's now getting a little mysterious. This is where mysticism gets mystical. Here's what the Buddhist Dujam Rinpoche says about meditation. Whatever perceptions arise, you should be like a little child going into a beautifully decorated temple. He looks, but grasping does not enter into his perception at all. So you leave everything fresh, natural, vivid, and unspoiled. Whatever appears is unstained by any grasping. So then all that you perceive arises as the naked wisdom of mind, which is the indivisibility of luminosity and emptiness. This is pure mind, not the thinking mind. This is consciousness itself, intrinsic awareness. And we begin to get a taste here of what the mystics say is our true nature. It's not any individual self. It is that consciousness, that awareness, that ground of all being in which everything arises and passes away. And it itself doesn't arise and pass away. And it itself isn't affected by whatever is arising and passing away. So you see the, 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 the difference here, at least in terms of meditation. When we, when we stop grasping, we start, stop running after everything that's coming along, when we just become quiet and still, oh, what is true about us starts to emerge. We don't have to go searching for it. In fact, the whole business of meditation is to learn to stop searching, just to be still, because there it's right there. The reality mystics talk about. It's not up in the heavens, you know. It's not down the bottom of the sea. It's right here, right now, in every moment. Mystics also practice love and compassion, but not to get the love they deserve, which is one of the most common blurbs in these things. You, How you can get the love you deserve. They practice for a very different reason. They practice to burn away the, those self-centered uh, desires and ways of relating to people that are only looking at what's good for me. And actually, this sounds very ascetic. Truly speaking, when you start practicing love and compassion, when you take the attention off yourself and when you start putting in other people and, and, and working and acting for their benefit or the benefit of the whole, you find that itself is joy. That itself is happiness. And sometimes we have to do this, we have to kickstart ourselves a little bit to do it. You know, if you wait around to feel love and compassion, that's what you're doing right now. But if you actually notice when you're being selfish and drop that and then behave compassionately, lovingly, you find that what you feared does not come true. That you feared the sky would fall in. If no one's looking out for number one, what's going to happen? That that doesn't happen. That people uh, don't take advantage of you. And, and the ultimate lesson is even if they do take advantage of you, they can't really. There's no you to take advantage of. 
But in the meantime, this is very important practice in all mystical traditions, love and compassion. Not to get the love you deserve, but here's what Jamgang Kantrol, another Buddhist, says about this. The whole basis of mind training is the two principles of throwing out concern for your own welfare and taking complete hold of the welfare of others. I have yet to read a statement like that in any New Age book. That's a hard statement. I mean, it's hard in the sense it's forceful. It's the kind of statement that says, oh, wait a minute, I'm not ready for that. Sure. The whole basis of mind training is the two principles of throwing out concern for your own welfare and taking complete hold of the welfare of others. That would be codependency in the Yeah. <laughs> yes, you're right. That probably would be. <laughs> now, let me say, this is something you can't just go do by making a New Year's resolution. It's a mind training. And the Tibetans have very wise ways of approaching this. One is that you can begin with visualization practices called sending and taking, where you actually do this in an imaginative way. So you get the feel of it, because it's very frightening to read something like that. And so you get to do this sort of rehearse it in your mind, and you start to see in your own experience, hey, this is really the route to true happiness here. Real joy is not looking after my concerns. It's letting all that go, taking the attention off self. Stop worrying about what's going to happen to you. How much of our suffering just comes from worrying? What's going to happen to me? Supposing that worry just never arose. I mean, look at the a whole uh, slew of suffering that just right there would be eliminated. And then instead of trying to increase personal power and take charge of their lives, mystics strive to surrender. Here's what Ramana Maharshi says, a great Hindu mystic of this century. The devotee surrenders himself to the master, and it means that there is no vestige of individuality retained by him. If the surrender is complete, all sense of self is lost, and then there can be no misery or sorrow. That's something you don't usually find in New Age books as a New Age technique. And that's something that in our culture strikes us as being, uh, you know, uh, fearful, frightening. Oh, I'm going to put myself under the tyranny of a master. By the way, the master here does not mean a human individual. Here he means the guru, but the guru writ large, the guru who's, your, who's God manifesting as your teacher. Here's what uh, God tells Catherine of Siena, who's the great Christian mystic of the Middle Ages. It is by the death of self-will that she realizes her union with me. And in no other way could she perfectly accomplish that. Mystics are very force, forceful, you know. They usually don't beat around the bush. The death of self-will, not the uh, building up of self-will. And here's what the Buddhist Wang Po says. Relinquishment of everything is the Dharma, and he who understands this is a Buddha. Surrendering everything. Jesus says the same thing somewhere in the Gospels about, uh, uh, it's called the cost of discipleship. You have to give up everything. Doesn't mean you have to give up everything in a external, literal sense of, you know, signing your house over to the Red Cross or something like that. It means this, this business of detachment. And there, again, there are all sorts of practices how you can develop this. One of the things you can do as a very simple thing 
is start doing just what you do now, but instead of doing it for yourself, do it for God, just like Ananda Moyamai mentioned. And when I use the word, I know some of you knew here, I mean God, I mean that, that divine ultimate principle. I don't mean a big daddy in the sky. Just to, uh, but it doesn't hurt to think about uh, God in an objective sense in this case as that principle of wisdom, love, and harmony that is behind this whole manifestation. And uh, I think it was Brother Lawrence who says, uh, the way we uh, become holy is, is simply by changing uh, the motive of our actions. Instead of doing the things for ourselves, we do them for God. So you can clean your house for God. It's God's house, not your house. Truly speaking, the house doesn't belong to you. Ownership is a fiction of our uh, of uh, society, you know? There's no such thing as ownership. We all agree to play that game, and it's fine. But truly, the house does not belong to you. Who does it belong to? Well, it belongs to God, clean it for God. Yes, Larry. But in saying that, this is where I get confused, then we're saying, then we're creating a sense of self separate from God, rather than us being God consciousness, Buddha nature. So that's where it gets... Ah. And, and I was thinking more about the question that I asked you, in doing the range of practices, whether it's meditation, prayer, it seems like all of them, what is built into it is that separation of self doing something, whether it's to God or higher power or whatever. Right. And so when I do them, it's, it's like, well, am I just reinforcing the sense of self? Well, the, this is the whole point why I said these are ways that you can go about approaching this because the reality is that we start in delusion with a sense of separation. And it does no good to say, oh, I'm, I, I'm not separate, just to say that or to think that. You know what I mean? There's a, there was a scene in Shirley MacLaine's movie, uh, a television movie based on her book where she sits on the beach and she says something like, I am God, I am God, I am God, you know. Uh, I mean, just saying it isn't going to get it. That's why we talk that these are uh, the, this delusion is deep rooted. The difference between uh, uh, New Age beliefs and practices and other sorts of worldly pursuits, New Age or not or whatever, is that if you start this way, it will destroy your sense of self. It's uh, described in the Hindu tradition uh, with a nice analogy about. Uh, um, stirring the coals, the ashes, of a funeral pyre that's burned down. As it burns down, you take a stick and you stir them to make it burn faster and more thoroughly. And then at the very end, you throw the stick itself in. So these practices of surrender to God, eventually you surrender everything, including yourself. And then there is no self left. Do you see what I mean? So it leads to a true realization of this reality, not just some uh, affirmation of it. And you, you finally see, oh, this is really true. There, there is no self. This is why enlightenment's always a big cosmic joke. All the practices you're doing, everything you've been doing, is all based on a, a delusion. In fact, from, from that point of view, from an ultimate point of view, there's no practice whatsoever is necessary. It's already the case that that's what you are. But since we don't see it, out of compassion, mystics have devised practices and teachings for us to help us to come to understand this for ourselves. Is that helpful? So why all this uh, emphasis on surrender? Because what mystics finally realize is that, that abiding happiness comes not from getting what you want, 
but from giving up the self that wants it. Or a better way to put that is to realize there is no self that wants it. So our whole direction is different. Here's what the Hindu Lali Shwari says. She was a great uh, saint of Kashmir, 14th century, I think. When your desires are burned in meditation, when the ego that binds you surrenders, when your mind becomes as clear as water, O Lali, then you become the eternal abode of Shiva. And here's what the great Sufi poet Rumi writes. I have become senseless. I have fallen to selflessness. In absolute selflessness, how joyful I am with self, with a big S, true self. And here's what Huang Po says. Our original Buddha nature is in highest truth Void, omnipresent, silent, pure. It is glorious and mysterious, peaceful joy. Enter deeply into it by awakening to it in yourself. That which is before you is it, in all its fullness, utterly complete. There is naught besides. This is an interesting one here because this points to something, uh, another aspect of our delusion. We're always seeking happiness in the future. We're always seeking happiness when we make our dreams come true, when we get our soulmate, when we've achieved our career goals, when we've become prosperous. And what mystics are saying, you're overlooking it. It's here. It's now. In this moment, utterly complete. Nothing missing here. Nothing missing right now. Total abiding happiness is now. So I think if we want to sum up the real difference between uh, New Age beliefs and mystical teachings, uh, we could do no worse than look to something the Buddha said 2,500 years ago. He said, There is a path that leads to worldly gain. Another road leads to nirvana. Let the seeker, the disciple of the Buddha, take the path to wisdom and enlightenment. And that's still true today. And I want to end with just a little P.S. postscript here, because I don't mean to totally ding New Age beliefs in this talk, although it may sound like it. Uh, first of all, as I said, that's really the way I started. And, you know, we all start someplace. And there are charlatans in the, in the New Age. There are charlatans among the mystical circles as well. But I think a lot of New Age teachings and books and so forth are uh, at least well-intentioned. And a lot of them, I think, do alleviate suffering. And I think a lot of the practices and techniques will bring more peace and harmony into people's lives. And a lot of them do talk about kindness and so forth. It's not all me, me, I, mine. And there are a lot of people who aren't ready for a mystical path, frankly, and maybe aren't interested and maybe never will be. And mystics are always interested in anything that will even alleviate suffering a little bit. So I think the problem is that the uh, New Age tends to blur this distinction between the two roads in life. And it tends to make it seem like you can have your cake and eat it too. That somehow you could follow a spiritual path all the way to the end, but you can also get your prosperity and all your desires fulfilled and so forth and so on. 
And I think that part is dangerous, and that part is misleading and deceptive. And we need the clarity of a Buddha who comes and says, look, when all is finally said and done, there, there are two ways to go in this world. And if you continually uh, or continue to pursue uh, your desires and uh, try and avoid what uh, you're averse to and so forth, it's only going to lead ultimately to more suffering. That's not the way to uh, end suffering forever. That's not the way to attain abiding happiness. So somewhere along the line, we have to introduce that as a teaching and say, you know, choose. And we come back to now what everybody agreed on in the beginning. Fundamentally, we are responsible. We are responsible for even that choice. But mystics at least want to make that choice plain. They want to lay it out and say, there is a choice here. There are two ways to go. And that's, in a certain sense, our function in life. Our, our fundamental function is just to make a testimony, to bear witness. Everything else is secondary. It's just say, this is possible. I have found this to be true. And you can find it to be true, too, if you so choose. And if you so choose, there's thousands of years of meditative techniques and uh, the techniques for everyday living that can help you realize this. But the fundamental choice is yours. So that's my little talk this morning on New Age beliefs and mysticism. Are there any questions or comments or... Yes. Well, when you were talking, it occurred to me that what you were saying about the New Age approach relative to Buddhism could also be equated possibly to modern psychology. I mean, it seems like modern psychology is about people being not happy and they go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist so that they can be happy. But it's not about um, not identifying with yourself as a Buddhist would. So would you say that a lot of what you said about the New Age movement is also analogous to uh, modern psychology? I would. And there's, first of all, an overlap in the New Age movement and modern psychology. And one of the things about modern psychology or therapies, it's like the term New Age. It covers a vast array of things. Uh, I think, personally, that psychology therapy can be very helpful, even in a spiritual context, if you know what you're doing. This is part of what we talk about, bringing these latent tendencies to light, because there are things that we do uh, that we just are not conscious of, of doing or why we're doing them. And we don't know how to deal with them. And even even some uh, spiritual techniques will not necessarily bring them to light or as quickly or whatever. And so I think it can be very beneficial to work with a good therapist to uh, to bring to light these deep fears, angers, and so forth we call in modern terms repressed so that you can work with them. Once that happens, though, uh, then you can work with them spiritually. And spiritually is always the same. The way you become free of them is in the moment. The way you become free of them is to realize them right in the moment when it's happening, and then let them go. And that's how you really become free. But in general, I don't think psychological therapies aim at what mystics aim at. They fall at something short. They aim to alleviate your suffering and to increase a little bit of that transitory happiness that you can have in life. Yes? Um, to me, the idea of letting go of the self is, um, I mean, I see it as a clear possibility, but it's very scary. 
like, you know, will I lose my mind? <laughs> yes. And in in the um, you know this is uh, uh, this is from a mystic's point of view the meaning of the fear of God. Okay. The fear of God is not the fear of a big daddy in the sky going to punish you. The fear of God is as you get close to God, which means less self. You're faced with this great awesome mystery, and you're faced with this prospect of losing yourself in that mystery, and that can create fear. The same thing pops up in the Buddhist tradition, although they don't express it in terms of God, but they call it the fear of emptiness. As you do meditation practice, and as it really begins to dawn on you experientially, not just intellectually, that maybe there is no self in here, one of the first kinds of reactions people can have is fear. So this is not uh, A, uncommon, and B, it's actually uh, considered a good sign. It means that the teachings now are, are penetrating to a deeper level than just an intellectual level. It's not just a question of intellectual understanding. There's beginning to be flashes of true experience of this. So that's recognized as something very valuable. And generally, the recommendation of how to handle that is to take the middle path, as the Buddhists would say. That is, don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't be macho about it. Don't say, I'm going to go confront that fear and so forth. On the other hand, don't allow it to turn you off the path entirely. It's a tricky balance. It is a tricky balance. And one of the images I love for this is if you watch a child uh, at the beach for the first time with its parents, and a small child, and they, the parents take the child up and the waves are coming in and the, you know, they're rolling up the beach and they, they bring the child up and the child's terrified of all this commotion and all that and runs away crying and screaming and maybe they try to coax the child back. But after a while, the child on its own uh, starts to watch its older siblings, I don't know, playing in the water and starts on its own to move up to the water and maybe get its feet wet a little bit and then run out and, you know, crying and then run back and maybe a larger wave knocks it over and that's really frightening and runs back. But, you know, it keeps being drawn back. And by the end of the day, you'll see the parents saying, Johnny, it's time to come home now. Oh, no, Mom, we've got to play a little bit longer, right? And the kid's out there frolicking in the waves. Now, nothing has changed objectively. Only the child's experience has changed, the child's attitude. What was originally frightening to the child has now become a source of great joy. And it was through the child's experimentation and being curious and having a little courage and being willing to come back and try a little bit more and learn for itself that it realizes, oh, this is fun. This isn't terrifying. This is wonderful. You see? So it's a nice image to remember how you, uh, for when you're faced with fear and how to work with it. Yes? How are you defining a mystic and a mystical tradition? Um, <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I would define a mystic as someone who has had a direct uh, experience of this divine reality that underlies everything. And uh, they, they've had a direct experience, in other words, they haven't just read about it or, or you know, uh, just, being, just doing practices. It's not necessarily a fully enlightened person, which I would call a Gnostic. And that is someone who has not only had a direct experience, but who now, if you like, lives that. 
So I would say uh, mystics is a broader category. A an enlightened being, uh, a Gnostic or whatever, is a subcategory of that. But the the key here is experience. And that's what defines it. I know sometimes there are a lot of New Age teachers who call themselves mystics, or there's a lot of talk about mysticism and so forth. But if you compare those teachings to the great classic mystics, the exemplars of humanity, the wisest teachers of humanity through the ages, I'm talking about Jesus, Buddha, Catherine of Siena, Mirabai, Lali Shwari, uh, Ibn Arabi, Rumi, you see, you can then see, well, are they teaching the same thing or not? And if you and if you read through those classic mystics yourself, I think you will find that they really agree. You see, they agree on the fundamental nature of reality, and they agree on the kinds of practices you need in order to realize this for yourself. This is why you noticed this morning I cross-referenced, you know what I mean? I read a little from one tradition, a little from another, a man, a woman. It doesn't make any difference. You read through, you say, oh, detachment, here it comes up again and again and again and again. So that's a very good thing to do and a very good way for you to be able to judge what's a genuine mystical teaching. If you are familiar with the classic mystics yourself, do you see what I mean? And if you then, through your reading, distill out what are the fundamental principles and then you run across some teacher, uh, then you can decide for yourself whether they are a true mystic or not. One of the values, great values of a tradition is tradition sift out the, the uh, you know, the gold from the dross. Do you know what I mean? What survives over time is what people have found really useful. And this is one of the reasons to uh, not to throw out the traditions of the past, to really honor them and to look to them and, and to read them. Because when you see that what has been preserved by our four uh, fathers and mothers, our ancestors, and what has been passed down to generation to generation, you see that these same principles have been passed down, and now you know they worked for people. That's why they're passed down. That's why they're preserved. So it's not just a blind veneration of the past. There's a, a very good reason for that. There's a whole sifting process that goes on uh, through uh, historical development. <clears throat> So it's tremendously valuable for us to have that to honor it, to preserve it, and to and to transmit it to future generations. So let me say that back. I'm not sure I got it. So you're saying that mysticism is just a transmission of fundamental truths? Uh, well, that the, the truths that uh, mystics claim to have realized and the practices that they teach as ways for you to realize it, are passed down from generation to generation within each tradition. And then if we compare them, we find that actually the, they're all based on the same fundamental principles. They are universal principles, not principles of this tradition as opposed to that tradition. And that category of people, when we go through that process, that is what I call mystics, the classic mystics. And then I take that as my definition, and then somebody else who's teaching something different, they're not mystics by my definition. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if I see all mystics teach surrender of self, and somebody else is teaching uh, you know, how to become the most powerful person in the world or something, I say, well, that, that may work or not, but that's not mysticism that's being taught here. You mind? Yes, go ahead. <laughs> um, do, you, uh, do you believe that a spiritual desire could be a, a material desire. 
Uh, well, let's. Well, if you need an example, I could just give you one. Yes, give me. In other words, um, the greatest desire in the universe could be the desire to become desireless, and if that's true, the desire to become desireless could be a self-defeating thing for wanting to become a mystic or be attuned to the mystics. Could be a self. I'm sorry, I missed that. In other words, the greatest desire in the universe. Uh huh. Could be the desire to become desirous. Yes. And if that's true, then that would be the most material desire in all creation. Why do you use the word material in this context? Because there, there's an, a, a subconscious reason why every finite being, including all the mystics, would have a desire to become desirous. Hmm. Well, I think what you're tapping into here is a paradox that is the heart of the mystical practices. Um, that uh, if you seek to be enlightened, your seeking is what's preventing you from being enlightened. Right. And uh, in, in truth, I use this terms uh, loosely here because for shorthand, but I talk about enlightened beings. There's no such thing as an enlightened being. There's no such thing as someone who is enlightened. Because to be enlightened is to realize there's no one to be enlightened. Right. You see what I mean? There so, so we're always in this paradox here. Now, if we want to talk a little bit more practically, first of all, I don't think it's necessarily or the best way to put it that mystics desire to be desireless. Uh, they desire to be free of personal desire in that sense. They may desire union with the divine. They may desire enlightenment or something like that. And again, this is a step. It's not an ultimate teaching. It's a step on the path. It's a, towards a final step. One of the ways you can look at it is you take all your desires for all these goodies and you all put it into one desire and you go after that. And then something funny happens on the mystical path because you don't actually get it. What you realize is you had it all along. Right, you had it all along. So, uh, so um, there was a lifeguard in Florida. He went to jump in a swamp, to swim in a swamp, and he, he dived in the swamp, and he went down about maybe six, seven feet down, and he found, a, this is a true story, it's happened about six, seven years ago or more, he found a billion dollars worth of emeralds, gold coins, encrusted statues of the Madonna, with, and he wasn't even thinking about anything like that. And then he found a canyon, a Spanish canyon, a canyon with millions of dollars worth of gold coins and diamond stuff in the canyon and, and the works. And here he was, he just dived right in, not even thinking of such a thing in a million years. He just wanted to go for a swim. So it almost seems like with many, many, many people that uh, that aren't even caught up in reading any of the books or thinking about anything, they kind of like dive into it or stumble into a certain particular thing, whether it's a spiritual thing or a spiritual form of enlightenment, or, or, or a material thing, or millions of different things. <laughs> What's, this? What's that? That's, that's a teaching, I'm holding up my finger, that's a teaching that uh, a famous Zen master, whose name I've forgotten, used to give. That was the teaching. <laughs> 
<laughs> see, but that's fine. You see, you didn't stumble into it. So we have to talk about doing some meditation practices and some other things, right? <laughs> I mean... Do you think it's also possible somebody can become a mystic, a great mystic, and see God and shake the hands of God and play ping pong with God, the whole thing, and then just get tired of the spirituality and, and give everything, and he gave every he or she gave everything away, and just out of boredom of being caught up in the spirituality and the enlightenment, want to come back to all the physical and obtain uh, millions of dollars in hand. Stop, no, no, wait a moment, stop, stop. You see, here's where, the, here's, where the, the, here's where the delusion is. There's no one caught up in any enlightenment or spiritual practice or anything. There's no one to come and go in all this. I'm just talking out of boredom. In other words... But there's no one to be bored. See, enlightenment is realizing there's no one to be enlightened. There's no one to do anything. So there's no one to be bored. There's no one to be, you know, anything. There's no one that you can't, there's no coming and going out of enlightenment because there's no one there to come and go anywhere. Right. You see? So we have to be careful of our language. We'll get tripped up if we start trying to talk about what is enlightenment <laughs> with our subject-object grammatical constructions. It's just impossible to do. That's why the other meaning of mysticism is comes from the Greek word muste, which means mute, related to our word mute. Can't speak. Literally can't speak, not because they're withholding some great secret, but you cannot speak about this because language divides things up and this is an underlying unity. Now, I'm sorry, the digression. <laughs> well, it's my question is being answered, actually. Um, I have been, what's been coming up in my life is a feeling of discouragement about uh, spiritual practices. And last weekend I saw Amber Terrell. You guys were, a couple people from here came up as well. And one of the things that she said was, there's nothing you can do. Forget it. There's nothing you can do. It was a bit discouraging, I have to say. And, um, you know, thinking about the struggles I've gone through, which I'm not complaining about, and I, you know, my struggles are my pearls. But, um, it is a bit discouraging. I mean, in a way, I intellectually understand there's nothing you can do. In order to realize truth, you have to stop seeking it. You have to stop seeking altogether. Now, the trouble is, we cannot stop seeking by any seeking to stop seeking. You have to, another way to put it is, you have to stop all effort. But we cannot stop effort by making an effort to stop effort, because that's the paradox. You're making an effort, right? Now, the thing is, we are all born making effort. We are all born seeking. This is what we are doing. Whether we're seeking spiritual stuff or not, whether we're speaking, uh, seeking uh, cannons full of gold and diamonds or whatever, you know, or whether you're seeking a soulmate or whether you give up on the whole spiritual path and you go off and go back to law school and get your degree or something, you're seeking. <clears throat> so it's not a question of, uh, well, I'll just be discouraged about the spiritual path and I'll quit the spiritual path. That won't solve the problem yeah, of your seeking. Work. I mean, you're still seeking. Right. You can't help but seek. So the question is, how can we uh, get seeking to cease? We can't do it ourselves. She's perfectly right 
when she says there's nothing you can do. You are the problem. That's why there's nothing you can do. But what can happen is seeking can be exhausted. By continuing to seek, by continuing to seek, you finally get to a place where there is nothing left to seek. There's nothing left, really nothing left to do. And when there's nothing left to do, guess what? The self, the parent self vanishes. Without something to do, it just ain't there. It's only because it's not real. It's not an entity. It's a kind of a process or it's a kind of an epiphenomenon of processing. So when all effort ceases, there's no self. It's just obvious. Because the self wasn't there ever to begin with. So the whole point about a spiritual path is you, the, the spiritual path uh, channels your effort into a direction where it will self-destruct. Unlike other kinds of paths. So, you know, I've said this before. Worldly paths and a lot of new age paths promise you success. You know, how to get what you want, how to make your dreams come true and all that. What a spiritual path promises you is absolute failure. You will never get this, but you have to really try to exhaust that effort. You have to really throw yourself into it. Do you see what I mean? And when you get to the point where you yourself realize well, there's nothing to do, you, it, it won't be like uh, all your bridges will have been burned. So there'll be nothing to go back to. So you just come to a place where you stop and then it dawns on you. Amber herself spent, if you read her biography, what, 25 years? Yeah. yeah. It's very interesting, especially these people who uh, attain uh, enlightenment or gnosis uh, in these circumstances where suddenly somebody's telling them, call off the search, which is Papaji's big, you know, um, slogan. Uh, when you read their biography, you find, yes, they spent 25 years searching. So by the time they get to this place, they're totally discouraged. They're like you. Do you know what I mean? They've even given up the path in some cases. And some friends says, oh, just come to this one last teacher. And they get there, and boom, they're ready to hear that. There are a lot of people who go hear Amber and Papaji and everybody else who aren't ready to hear it. So if you are, let's put it this way, if you are... Uh, truly on a spiritual path, at a certain point you become hooked. You can't quit. And it's very interesting to try for a while. Say, I'm going I'm to stop all this meditation, I'm going to stop all these precepts, or whatever your practice is, I'm just going to give it up and see if you can do it. Actually, it's not possible, and I do have a few more avenues I have to explore. <laughs> yes, right, of course, of course. I, I saw them actually in the meditation retreat. I was like, and you do have to explore them. This is the whole point. This is the whole point. There's a story about if you that just don't go through the door, mark God, because you might find it, and then you won't be able to search anymore. <laughs> I haven't found that door yet. I'm looking for that door. Yeah, but see, there is no door, mark God. God's no limits. Limitless, boundless, no doorway. Just here. Just this. <laughs> Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? And if we, you want to hang around, we can talk some more. And there's tea out there, and there's a library. And if you want to hang around and have tea and check out the library and all that, uh, please feel free to.